the Panhandle News Network. The views and opinions on this station do not necessarily represent the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST, or West Virginia Radio Corporation. Here we go! Welcome to Panhandle Live on WEPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Panhandle Live is brought to you by Sutton and Janelle Attorneys at Law. Visit their new location at 224 West King Street, Martinsburg, and online at suttonandjanelle.com. Here are your hosts of the 2022 WVBA Talk Show of the Year, Jordan Warner and Marsha Kavalik. It is Friday the 10th, and you are tuned into Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton & Janelle, full-service law firm, suing us Virginia and Maryland, helping individuals, families, businesses with all of their legal needs, family law, criminal defense, DUI, personal injury, mediation. They provide legal counsel tailored to you. You can visit their historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street. You can always find them online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Ice Warner. Alongside me is Marsha Kavalik. Marsha, good morning. Good morning. Beautiful day in the Panhandle, of course. Absolutely. It's gorgeous outside today. There was some ugliness yesterday in Smithsburg. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, the latest that we know, and, and we're going to play some uh, cuts from Washington County Sheriff uh, Doug Mullendore. Uh, authorities released more information on Thursday's mass shooting in Western Maryland, Washington County. Sheriff Doug Mullendore says deputies responded to the Columbia Machine Facility in Smithsburg around 2.30 in the afternoon and found three employees dead and a fourth in critical, critical condition. At this time, I can confirm that all the victims and the suspects were current employees of the uh, Columbia Machine Incorporated. The suspect fled before deputies arrived, but a vehicle description was circulated. Maryland State Police spotted him a short time later. Troopers tried to stop the suspect, but he immediately began shooting at him, according to police. They returned fire. The suspect and one trooper were injured and taken to a hospital. The suspect is described as a 23-year-old man who lives in West Virginia. His name is being held pending charges. Uh, here's the sheriff talking about uh, about the um, about the on- ongoing um, investigation and what happened. The suspect and the trooper exchanged fire. Both subjects were injured, and both were transported to Meredith Medical Center for treatment. He describes the suspect. He's identified as a 23-year-old Hispanic male who resides in West Virginia. We are not releasing his name at this time because he has not been charged. Uh, we are currently in the process of doing that. And uh, finally, the gun used by the suspect. The weapons used at both scenes was a semi-automatic handgun. The exact caliber, make, and model is not being released at this time. It's part of the investigation. So the Maryland State Police, FBI, ATF, Smithsburg Police, Hankerstown Police, Berkeley County Sheriff's Office, uh, of course the Washington County Sheriff's Office, all responding to that incident and, uh, and the ongoing uh, investigation. And uh, that active shooter uh, incident happened yesterday around 2.30 on the Columbia Machine uh, Incorporated property at Bickle Road in Smithsburg. And uh, just to recap some of, some of that story, uh, the deceased victims include Mark Allen Fry, aged 50, Charles Edward, Edward Minnick Jr., 31, and Joshua Robert Wallace, 30 years old. There was an in, another victim who was injured, identified as 42-year-old Brandon Chase Michael. Uh, the suspect, uh, on last report, remained uh, in law enforcement custody at Meredith Medical Center, identified as a 23-year-old Hispanic male who resides in West Virginia. Again, as the sheriff mentioned, his identity will not be released 
until charging documents are filed. And uh, they're still investigating the motive for uh, that shooting. Of course, there's talk about, you know, what, why that was. Um, the trooper that was injured in the exchange of gunfire received non-life-threatening injuries and has been treated and released from Meredith Medical Center. And this is coming right off the back of the uh, shooting at the Valley Mall. Right. Just a few days ago. And, um, yeah, seems like this stuff is just commonplace almost anymore. Well, I... I or mean, not commonplace, I, but not, not as, I don't know. Not as rare as it used yes. to be, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's disturbing because, you know, Western Maryland, you know, our little area has yeah. been pretty quiet. Um and, and it seems as though the, the two different shootings that happened this week, you know, one day back to back may have had a different color to them as far as yeah. like the reasoning behind one might have been just an individual dispute um, with another individual, kind of one of those crimes of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure yet what this one was about, but obviously a lot of the victims all worked together with the suspect. So, yes. And, uh, you know, with the being... Just up the road. I mean, um, yeah, it, it, it's definitely a little bit more jarring with this stuff happening half hour away. Right. Absolutely. So uh, obviously, you know, we're thinking about all those uh, those folks in law enforcement who responded to that scene. Um, you know, they're they're going to need some time to to you know decompress from all of this. That um, and obviously the folks who handled things on both days. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, this just got to be. Got to be hard for the first responders community. Absolutely. But thankfully, they were all you know working together. Yep. And uh, the injury to the trooper, if he was treated and released, not nearly as serious as it could have been. But um, you know, when you think about it, it could have been really awful. Absolutely, absolutely. So. It seems. I don't know. It's just hard to. Uh, it's hard to even find the words to talk about this kind of stuff anymore. You know. Right. But. In other news, um, more panhandle related, down uh, Harper's Ferry Way, the Hilltop House uh, had a big presentation yesterday. Right. So as you know, it's been about a 17-year saga. Uh, the the Hilltop House, I remember going in the early 90s and enjoying a nice that Sunday brunch I don't there. think I've ever been to it. It was it was lovely. You could tell it was, you know, a little on its, you know, yeah. on its decline then. But apparently that was a, sh- a story uh, shared by the, the folks who are developing that. And... Um, that is uh, Fred and Karen Schaufield, uh, who are with Swan and Legend Venture Partners, and uh, they have been spearheading this. It's it, I, to say it's a labor of love, probably a little, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hy- her hyperbolic, but mm-hmm. um, but obviously they they had been exposed to the Hilltop House as a young couple in the early '90s and uh, wanted to make it something good again. By the time they've been able to move on the property and start uh, moving uh, the, the materials around. The building itself has been in, de- in decay and decline. They just had to try to salvage what they can. They did make a point about historical preservation. Mm-hmm. So I talked to them yesterday because they did a presentation with um, uh, the Ruritan Martinsburg, uh, I'm sorry, the Martinsburg Rotary uh, yesterday and kind of giving an update. So uh, here's, here's my... Uh, interview with them here's a first clip just kind of talking about their motivations i'm uh here with karen schaufeld and fred schaufeld you did a presentation today with the martinsburg rotary club and talked about progress at the hilltop house um 
it's been a long time coming. When did you guys start this idea? I know you talked about being here in the 90s and visiting, but when did you actually think, what year did you think that you might actually be able to rehab this place? Really around 2005, we started uh, with discussions with uh, Mr. Stan Hagen, um, who owned the property, uh, and his, uh, his partner, Nancy Bailey, at the time. And... You know, since then, um, we, it's taken a long time to get to this point, but long we, process. We have followed the, the, um, the events in Harper's Ferry and some of the, the um, pushback that happened at this project. Obviously, now it's 2022. Uh, you might look at an opening possibly in 2024. Did you ever think it would take this long? We never thought it would take this long, but it's, after all these years, getting to this point is really exciting, a little nerve-wracking, still a thousand more steps to go, but we've come so far, so we're very, very excited. Of course, you could hear the the ambient sound mm-hmm. from uh, from the like it was packed. lunch lunch being um, cleaned up after. Yeah, I, apparently they have a lot of fun at that Rotary uh, Club. Uh, so one of the cons- it, it was interesting because after their presentation, people in the audience and a lot of them business leaders and folks that you would know um, in the community got to ask them questions. And one of the big concerns was historical present uh, preservation. Wanted to ask you about historical preservation. In your presentation, you talked a lot about the history, and I know there were a lot of concerns here in the audience about what is going to be retained. Um, How hard was that with the state of disrepair the building has been in as it has sat? Well, we had to take it down um, because it was structurally unsound. But while we did that, we very carefully salvaged all the stones which had been through two fires. So those are being palletized by a local stonemason. Wherever there was timber or flooring, we've been holding it in sea containers. Um, But uh, we'll be putting it back up in approximately the same footprint um, of the original hotel and the dance pavilion that were there in 1914. So the look will be very much like it did look in 1914. We have some photographic evidence around that. So we we want to try and recapture what that building would have felt like, both inside and out, um, if it had been a hotel that had aged gracefully and did not have the structural foundation issues. And, and even when you look at the turret of the hotel, there's stones that have a 45-degree cut in them because it's a... Um, it's an octagon, and we're putting that same 45-degree cut of the stones in the same uh, corner locations. Their presentation yesterday talked some, um, you know, dollars, dollar figures, an average, they say, of 239 construction jobs a year, generating an excess of $30 million in personal income, and uh, they say greater than $100 million in total economic output, five-plus million dollars of state and local tax revenue, and approximately, they say, two-thirds of the economic impact will remain in Harper's Ferry. They were very grateful for the um, the state legislature uh, creating essentially um, a niche uh, law that would allow uh, this kind of development to go through in a tiny, tiny town like Harper's Ferry. Uh, they are anticipating more than 135 full and part-time jobs. Uh, these may come as early as 2024. They're hoping they get to open uh, in 2024, and a total impact on state economic output of approximately $27 million uh, each year. However, uh, it's going to cost a lot to get this uh, this going. So I talked to, to uh, the developers about that as well. 
Has the price tag changed in the ensuing years, and and how much will this be all in uh, once once this all happens? Oh, the price tag has changed dramatically. Um, unfortunately, when we first started, we thought uh, this renovation project was going to cost under twenty million, and right now we're looking at a price tag of over one hundred and fifty million. So we're still breathing into a paper bag. And you have partners in this endeavor. We have a number of partners in this endeavor and uh, financiers, uh, but this is really a, a project of passion for most of the partners. There's a lot of money that's gone into it already, but these are people who want to do double bottom line projects, who have done double bottom line projects in the past. Um, but along with that are just you know, straight banks that you know, want to get a return on their money. So uh, that's a portion of my conversation uh, with Fred and Karen Schaufield, uh, who are developing the Hilltop House. Uh, they want to turn it into a destination, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a lot of exciting plans. There was a lot of pushback. Uh, at, of course, it took them 17 years to kind of get to Oof. this point. So uh, more on that as it develops, and I think Hoppy's going to have them on, too, to flesh out Very some cool. of this as well in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like that's going to be a, a a cool, I would say, new addition to Harbors Ferry, but it's mm-hmm. been there since, what, 1912 or 14? They're bringing it they back. There. Absolutely. It's, it's cool to see those old buildings uh, coming back to life in a new way, but uh, absolutely. Go check out over at PanhandleNewsNetwork.com, Marsh's uh, story on that. But stick around. We'll be back here in a second on Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. It's Panhandle Live, the voice of the Panhandle. Here are your hosts, Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton & Janelle, full-service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland. You can visit their historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street. You can always find them online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Ice Warner. Alongside me is Marsh Kavalik. And Marsh, we have our next guest joining us in studio. We sure do. This is an exciting project that is happening down uh, on the campus of uh, St. Joe's. St. Joseph School, I should say. Kimberly Roche is the executive director of Mary's Refuge. She's in to talk uh, to uh, talk to us about a new maternity home for expectant moms and their babies in the old St. Joseph School convent. Welcome in. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Good morning. Oh, you got us. Are you on? And- <laughs> Telling you, somebody comes in here and messes with my board every <laughs> single day because there's no way I keep forgetting to have that mic. But anyways, Kimberly, thank you for joining us this morning. <laughs> thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. So um, this is obviously a, a labor of love for you. Yes. Um, talk about the need for a maternity home in this area. Absolutely. Um, well, West Virginia um, has really not had many maternity homes at all. And so we are going to be the first Catholic-based one, the first Christian-based one, especially in the Eastern Panhandle. And we will serve the entire Eastern Panhandle. Um What a maternity home is, is a home where women that find themselves in a crisis pregnancy, meaning that they have nowhere else to go, they may have some issues, they may be abortion vulnerable, they may be in a domestic violence situation, they may be homeless, they have circumstances where they're under pressure that that want to find a safe place to have their child. And we are the other side of the pro-life movement. We are the celebration of life. Uh, So it is a program and they can come in. Uh, they do a screening phone call with me. Uh, we can serve up to eight families at a time. Uh, each family would have their own bedroom. Uh, we have a community kitchen. We have a community uh, bathroom, uh, community living room. But each mother has their own separate room. 
uh, in that room would be uh, everything that they need, all the furniture they need, all the clothing, um, all the incidentals that they need. And so. you said this is not a shelter, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah, there's a distinction. Yes, there is a distinction. Um, being as we are um, a maternity home, we are actually a program. Uh, so there are uh, classes that they have to attend, uh, all based around their crisis. Um, they can, uh, there's parenting classes, child care classes, um, daycare uh uh, options out in the community, uh, daily living skills, those kind of classes. Uh, there is a 9 p.m. curfew. There's, uh, they are free to go out of the house uh, from 9 till 9, 9 in the morning till 9 at night. We hope they're addressing their crisis. We hope that they're staying in a, you know, away from an abuser or some bad situations. Um, but getting back to the question, too, of uh, who would qualify, mm-hmm. uh, when I do that screening interview, what I'm looking to make sure is that they're 18 and older, uh, that they are pregnant, they have to be pregnant when they enter the program, um, that they are w- motivated to making positive changes in their life, and they're clean and sober is very critical, especially for West Virginia. We are simply not set up to, to handle active addictions. Um, is there testing? Yes, yes. They uh, And we will require your urine test anytime we need to. Um, so we really hope that they will stay clean uh, in their time there. So they can stay up to, because it's a program and not housing, mm-hmm. They can stay up to two years and, um, sorry, they're funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're falling off. Um, they can stay up to two years if they follow the program, if they meet their goals, each family is given uh, a plan of action based on their own circumstances and they have to hit those goals, uh, to stay in the program, but they have the opportunity to stay up to two years. Oh, wow. So, So, um, the, the convent is a beautiful building. Yes. It's older. I, I went in there and got to, to uh, tool around with my friend Meg. Oh, and, yes. um, and and the, the rooms there, because it was a convent, obviously set up for a, a dormitory setting. Mm-hmm. Um, how hard have you been working to retrofit that for its purpose? It's been insane. Um, the convent was closed for a couple of years. And so I have a partner in crime. His name is pa- Patrick Michelle. And he's actually the administrative officer and financial officer at St. Joe's Parish. So he's been handling the renovations and the logistics while I, you know, create the program and the founding documents and get the program ready. So uh, it's been a labor of love for the two of us. He's just as committed to pro-life as I am, as the whole parish is. So it has um, been interesting. We, we're, uh, the electricians are actually finishing up today, and the plumbers are in there putting in uh, all new toilets, um, all new um, everything's going to be new. Uh, we literally had a day of caring where we had the building uh, stripped out by volunteers. We had 45 volunteers show up in four hours and clear off four, uh, three, three floors of things. So um, it's a labor of love in a lot of different ways. And the, and the response from St. Joseph's ministry, we are uh, ministry of St. Joseph, uh, the parish has been unbelievable. And they have been supporting us as well as the other Catholic churches. And we're also building a non-Catholic uh, coalition of churches, and they've been very helpful as well. So uh, when do you think the doors might open? Uh, September 8th is our goal. Uh, you know, we have been raising good money. Uh, we have the money for the renovations. We have the money to pay for two staff, myself and a house mother, that will be living there uh, full time. Now, will you be uh, eventually adding more staff, or is that kind of where it's going to stay at, you think? Well, right now we're focused on um, kind of more one-on-one help, one-on-one help. And also, um, you know, we have a lot of volunteers that are doing it. Uh, The eventual goal would be to expand, Mm -hmm. uh, but we want to get through this first critical year. 
Yeah. And can people uh, donate and, of course, volunteer and things like that? Absolutely. Um, if you want to donate to Mary's Refuge, uh, what we ask is on, on your check that you write to uh, write it to St. Joseph's Parish, and then in the memo line, write down Mary's Refuge only. Okay. Because the one thing I'm guaranteeing the, po- the, the public is that every dollar that they donate goes directly to Mary's Refuge. Absolutely. Kimberly Roche is with us. She's the executive director of Mary's Refuge, and she's talking about a new maternity home for expectant moms and their babies in the old St. Joseph School Convent here in Martinsburg. What motivates someone to do this work? Wow. <laughs> I've never been asked that question before. Um, I was a single mom. Um, my marriage kind of fell apart. And I raised three sons of my own and uh, just became aware of the needs in the community. And uh, being Catholic and, and the issues around, especially now with uh, Roe versus Wade coming up, uh, it became a labor of love, um, something I wanted to do. I've been doing it. Um, I was responsible as the founding director also of uh, two maternity homes in, in Maryland. Oh, wow. so, so, yeah, I've done this work quite a bit of time. And... Uh, I know it inside and out well enough to know that uh, we're going to succeed and, and really help the mom. And we're going to make the moms productive citizens. This is a, based on an independent living model. And the moms are required to work, go to school, or volunteer. So uh, the goal is to give them the skills that they need to get, get back into the community and be productive citizens. And, and have their baby start at a good life, chance at life. So you can have up to eight families, yes. um, moms and, and their babies. Yes. And, and the... Uh, the mothers that come in probably are not going to have a teenager or an older child, right? No, they can't. Uh, we're simply not equipped. So the child, if they have an existing child, it has to be one child under the age of three. You know, and we're just, it's so we can only help so many families at, at, at this time. Absolutely. Again, we've been speaking with Kimberly Roche, executive, executive director of Mary's Refuge. Before uh, we let you go, we have to get to our bottom of the hour break here. Can you let everybody know where they can go to find out more, of course, get some more information if they want to donate, volunteer? Absolutely. Uh, we've made it as simple as possible. We do have a new website. It's marysrefuge.org. And if you go on there, you'll find a donation page, and that'll lead you directly to St. Joseph's uh, Parish page. And you just hit the, bring the Dropbox down and hit Mary's Refuge, and you can donate. And like I said, you can also send in checks and uh we're, we're going to be around the neighborhood a lot to, to help people to do well, come back. Yeah. back. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, yeah. Kimberly, thank you for joining us this morning on K- um, Panhandle Live. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Stick around for more here on Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Welcome back to Panhandle Live. Here are your hosts, Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton & Janelle, full-service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland. You can visit their historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street. You can always find them online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Nice Warner. Alongside me is Marsha Kavalik. If you missed it, before the break, we had Kimberly Roche of Mary's Refuge on to talk about their maternity... Um, home. Thank you. Their maternity home that uh, they are uh, working towards. It sounds like it's going to be a, a very useful home. That old convent is yeah. really, really, really cool. I, yeah. I halfway thought I was going to turn around and see a ghost when I was in there working. My friend Meg and I volunteered, like our day out was volunteering there <laughs> one, t- one time, and it was really way cool. Oh, speaking of ghosts, and I'll save this uh, for Yeah, because we got to get some online. I'll save it, but that's a, I'm glad you brought that up. But anyway, we do have <laughs> our a ghost next, story coming yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> I do have a ghost story coming up. Uh, but what our next guest is joining us on the phone, the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. It's Director Max Richmond. Max, how are you doing this morning? 
I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. So, uh, so I understand the Social Security trustees uh, released a report uh, that they're saying signals that it's now time to strengthen Social Security, which I feel like is not a huge surprise, but break that all down for us. Well, you're absolutely correct. Uh, the trustees of Social Security issue a report uh, every spring. Uh, the one that we just received a couple of weeks ago tells us that the program uh, will be solvent. That means we'll pay, be able to pay everyone their full benefits until 2035. That's a year better, an improvement of a year uh, from last year. But we need to make some changes to Social Security because if we don't, in 2035, if we get to that point, people are going to have a 20% cut to their benefits. And as you know, that is totally unacceptable. That's, um, that's dangerous. Yeah, it's a big, that's a huge cut. Oh, that, that is huge. That's devastating. And there are ways to avoid that. There are proposals in the Congress. There's a legislation in the House of Representatives that has over 200 co-sponsors. Uh, it's the key sponsor is Congressman John Larson of Connecticut, who's the chairman of the Social Security Subcommittee of the Ways and Means Committee. His legislation improves benefits in a number of ways and extends the solvency date beyond 2035. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and uh, Congressman Peter DeFazio are introducing a bill, I think today or maybe it was yesterday, and that would um, also extend the Social Security solvency uh, till the end of this century, even beyond that a little bit. And the way that is accomplished is not by cutting benefits. You know, we have a retirement crisis in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't need to cut benefits, and, and uh, there are a lot of proposals that do just that. They're not called cutting benefits. They're called raising the retirement age. Uh, in the past, we've had plans to privatize the program change the formula for determining the COLA. Very important. The COLA is supposed to keep the Social Security benefit up with inflation. Uh, the proposals we've heard over a number of years would cut that COLA, all in the, in, in the name of extending the program solvency by reducing benefits. That's not where we ought to be going. We ought to be bringing more revenue into the program. That can be done in a fair way by adjusting the cap on wages subject to the uh, payroll tax. I have done hundreds of town hall meetings, hundreds over the years, including in West Virginia a few years ago. I was there for three or four days. Uh, A lot of people don't know there's a cap Mm -hmm. on benefits. It changes a little bit, goes up a little bit every year. This year it's $147,000 in wages. After that, no more payroll tax. Why? And, and that's big in a state like West Virginia that is uh, an older state, probably one of the older, really, median states in the country, right? Absolutely correct. And uh, the, the proposals that I just mentioned, and there are others as well, would change that wage cap so that more revenue can be brought in in a fair way so that the wealthy can can. can be part of the solution, paying paying their fair share and bringing more revenue into the program. That would allow an extension of that 2034-2035 date and allow for some important improvements in the program. That's that's where we ought to be going, and I'm hoping 
Uh, I talked to the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee a couple days ago in the House of Representatives, and he was pretty confident that legislation would be able to get through the House pretty soon. They're waiting for what's called a Congressional Budget Office score and on to the, on to the Senate. So I'm hoping we'll... Uh, this report, while we added a year to solvency, <clears throat> was very revealing in, in that we see clearly we need to take some action, action that is fair. The longer we wait, the more difficult uh, those choices become. So I'm hoping we'll see some improvement in the, in the Social Security program by virtue of bringing more revenue into the program in a fair and responsible way. So what has there been notable pushback? Because obviously, if you're tapping into folks who are at a higher uh, income level, uh, they, they may not even need a Social Security benefit. So um, is, is there a lot of pushback from, from folks who might be those higher wage earners? Well, I haven't heard a lot. What I have heard is poll after poll showing clearly that the American people support uh, improving Social Security and support bringing more revenue in uh, from, from wealthier uh, individuals. You know, I don't know a lot of wealthy individuals, but the Me ones neither. that I do know, they would be okay with paying a little bit more to make sure the program is there well into the future. Again, we're speaking with National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare Director Max Richmond. Unfortunately, we have to get to our uh, next break here in just about a minute and a half, and I want you to have enough time to let people know uh, where to go to find out more about the committee and uh, you know, ask any questions if they have any. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, if, if anyone in your audience is interested in more information, they can go to our website, ncpssm.org. Very good information, easily accessible. Or they can call our 800 number, 1-800-966-1935. Easy to remember, it's the year Social Security became law, 1-800-966-1935. Well, Max, thank you for joining us this morning on Panhandle Live, and we'll talk to you again soon. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Absolutely. And that was Max Richmond, director of the National Co- National Committee to Preserve Social Security uh, and Medicare. If you missed any of that, listen back to it a little bit later on today on our Panhandle Live Facebook and Spotify page. But yeah, Marsha, talking about ghosts. And um, oh, yeah, I was, I usually, I, I walked a dog around downtown a good bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll go down by the train station in the uh, Bell Boyd house. Famously haunted that, right? that whole area, I'm sure. And I might have saw something the other day. Ooh. So I'll save that whole story for when we talk to our next guest, uh, Matt Umstead. Uh, with Berkeley 250, Berkeley County 250, because that's in full swing right mm-hmm. now. And uh, maybe he'll have some ghost answers for me. Well, we'll see here in a minute. But stick around on Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. It's Panhandle Live on WEPM and WCST, part of the Panhandle story for 75 years. Here are your hosts, Jordan Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton & Janelle, full-service law firm, serving us Virginia and Maryland. You can visit their historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street. You can always find them online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Ice Warner. Alongside me is Marsh Kavalik. If you missed it, for the break, we had National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare Director Max Richmond on to talk about, well, Social Security and Medicare. So if you missed any of that, you can listen back to it a little bit later on. But Marsha, we have a packed house here to finish up the day. I'm so excited and a little disappointed we only have until 10 o'clock, but... Uh, yeah. 
you know, a lot of cool things have been happening through the year, beginning like actually um, New Year's Eve mm-hmm. to celebrate, commemorate uh, Berkeley County's 250th. And then June is really ramping up because the whole weekend with Father's Day and West Virginia Day and Juneteenth is coming up. And to talk about that, we have uh, 250th Committee Chairman Matt Umstead and his special guest, Helen Harris. Welcome in. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Absolutely. So, uh, well, first of all, how's the uh, commemoration been going? It seems like it's gone off without a hitch. No elbows thrown at the duck race? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. uh... (laughs) That sounds a little hesitant. We heard heard a bit, a very small amount of a story from the mayor. Kevin Knowles and uh, and Doug Copenhaver, right? (laughs) Yes, the mayor and the the, uh, Berkeley County Council president both got into the water. Uh, (laughs) What a great example that was to the children. It was uh, very competitive. Competitive, and uh, as a result of that outcome, uh, you know, Mr. Mayor is going to be sitting in the dunk tank at the Independence Celebration coming up on Ju- July 3rd, and the president will be throwing balls to try to sink them into the uh, tank. I bet Doug has an arm, too. I bet. I bet. <laughs> the girls' softball days. He's already... <laughs> But it seems like 250 commemoration has been great so far. Yes, it has. And we're really excited about the upcoming uh, week uh, for in commemoration of Juneteenth, West Virginia Day weekend. And I can't even tell you how many uh, people are involved in the excitement. And, and one of the key people involved in that is Helen Harris. Uh, she's really, really stepped up and really helping out. She and her husband, Leonard, um, we're hoping to have a lot of new visitors to the Sumner Raymond Memorial School, which which she and her husband have been instrumental in and in trying to keep that story alive and tell those stories about uh, Sumner Raymond, which is an awesome, awesome visit for anyone at all interested in our history here in the community. So um, if Helen talk so, a little yeah, bit Helen, about can that. you tell us a little bit what Juneteenth is for people that might not be familiar right. You, you know, as, as Juneteenth is, like you said, a lot of people aren't familiar with it. You know, even myself, I only became familiar with it, let's say, within the last five years or mm-hmm. so, but still didn't realize all the different things that went on. So imagine that you have the Emancipation Proclamation mm-hmm. on January 1, 1863, to end slavery. And the people are just so happy. Finally, they're going to be free. I mean, to the point to this day, you have the services that take place in churches still on December, then start uh, New Year's Eve, and people stay into the new year uh, to commemorate what happened on January the 1st, mm-hmm. 1863. Now, imagine you're free, but then in some other areas, you don't know you're free. Mm-hmm. So it's like being in jail and you've been, uh, your your time is up, but nobody tells yeah. you you're still there for two more years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and they're just going to let you, you They're know. just going to let you do yeah, whatever, yeah, they're not do the work. Yeah. And that's what happened. You know, these people are still slaves mm-hmm. two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And Berkeley County was one of those areas. It's actually listed in the emancipation proclamation as an exception and so because it was controlled by the union at the time and the union areas were not declared as being emancipated wow uh, yes in Get that document i've never document. heard that before so that was like some weird cruel carve Loophole, out yeah 
there was there were definitely loopholes. I told, I was like one thirty this morning looking at some of this. She's recent. She did more pro, show prep than we did. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. You know, and um, let me find that area where it, it talked about. Um, Let's see here. All right, while you're re- Neither slavery nor involuntary certitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Which means basically anybody in prisons, which was usually the population was mostly black, were still being used as slaves. You know, that was still, that was one of the loopholes. The other loophole was with the Emancipation Proclamation, what they did was say, you know, the the slaves in the Confederate states need to be free. They are to be free. But it doesn't say anything about the Union states. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Because it was all over. It wasn't just in the South. Yeah. And the Berkeley and the areas that were controlled by the Union which was mm-hmm. Berkeley County and other jurisdictions specifically are listed, actually spelled out, listed in the document and in the Emancipation Proclamation as being exceptions as well, because the Union controlled those areas, yeah. which were Confederate areas, but Union had soldiers had taken you know control of those areas. So you mentioned two years. Is that when things eventually changed? With the Union states, I'm not exactly sure when that changed, but when you when you think back about this, and I, I was telling Matt, I said, this is why we still have problems today, because of those loopholes. And also, you know, it said these laws sent more black people to prison than ever before. Because if they were incarcerated, they were under they that. Were they were used, used as, as wow. slaves. And by the late 19th century, the country experienced its first prison boom Legal scholar Michelle Alexander writes in her book, The New Jim Crow. And that's a book that everybody talks about now because a lot of people are reading that book, The New Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. So I thought last night, what do I do? I go on Amazon because I got to order this New <laughs> yeah. Jim Crow book. I have Absolutely. to read it. you know. But, but just think about that. And the population that you have in prison today are mostly young black men. The 13th Amendment is actually what cleaned it up and said at least it, it didn't clean up everything, but it cleaned up the the whole universal no slavery is allowed in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that did yeah, not no get, loopholes. That did not get mm-hmm. passed until eighteen sixty five, I believe, by Congress. And then it was So rat- that's that two and, years. And then it was ratified by the states after that, obviously. Now, now we don't have too much too much time left, about six minutes until uh the top of the hour. So I want uh to kind of get through all of this today. So um Juneteenth, right? So fast forward a little bit. Juneteenth comes around. What is the significance behind the day itself? Uh, the significance there is the fact that technically for blacks, that's when we truly were free. Yeah. So it, you know, you're looking at June 19th, uh, 1865 is when blacks were truly free. So that's why even years ago, people would say July the 4th is not my independence day. Mm -hmm. And I had heard that like growing up and, you know, things like that, but I had no idea what that meant. You know, yes. and then uh, I found out about Juneteenth and found out how, you know, significant of a day that was. And then it, it all, you know, really fell into place and made sense. Yes. And and to my surprise, it was actually uh, a, became a holiday, I think, in Texas somewhere around 1979 mm-hmm. or somewhere to that effect. Absolutely. And now it's a, a national Now it's a national So uh, part of the 250th, which we've really enjoyed, is all those posts about local history. So cool. And during the whole whole June celebration, including Juneteenth, there are going to be a lot of nods to history. As part of Juneteenth, 
Helen, um, there are going to be some look backs, looks back as far as African-American history, right? Well, I mean, there's going to be the program that takes place, you know, and it's going to be on the south side, you know, the mm-hmm. old Martinsburg Plaza is where all this is going is to happen. That? It's going to be on June 19th. It's going to be okay. on Father's Day. You know, so that will take place on that day from one to five. Uh, there will be entertainment, uh, just a brief history, you know, that I will give on June 19th. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's going to be just a lot of entertainment there. And then just to see some of the dance routines. And then there's going to be Bessie Smith. Right. Who's also she, going she's to be there. one of uh, one of three history alive performers in partnership with the collaboration with the West Virginia Humanities Council. Bessie Smith is participating. She's a, a first person portrayal. Basically, she's I guess she was like a female blues singer of the 1920s and 30s. Oh, neat. I wasn't alive back then. And I don't (laughs) know. I don't think any of us were. Uh, But I apparently she was really uh, very well known in in that era. And uh, but we're also having um, uh, of the uh, Underground Railroad, uh, the famous Underground Railroad. Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman Mm -hmm. uh, uh, speaking engagement at the uh, at the uh, library. Uh, on the 17th, uh, leading up to Juneteenth. Uh, she'll be there at the library doing a similar program, and we'll have some West Virginia Day-oriented um, uh, Francis Pierpont, the father of West Virginia, also with that program, participating in the uh, West Virginia Day weekend uh, celebration activities. Also tours of the historic Sumner Raymer yes. uh, Memorial School, which is, of course, very dear to your heart. And it Leonard's. is, and it will take place between 3 and 5 on that day, and Leonard and I will be there to give tours and you know, just give some people an idea of what it was like being um, a student. So you're speaking in the morning and giving tours and stay all, busy. Day, all the rest of the day. <laughs> you know, you do what it takes. Yeah, Absolutely. it's a really great opportunity to visit the school. I can't emphasize that enough. If you if you've really, you know, you're really missing a real jewel in Martinsburg. It's a tremendous historic heritage site. Absolutely. Now, uh, we just have a few minutes, so uh, I want to give you some time to let people know where to go. And uh, you're selling cool Christmas ornaments and things like that? Yeah, we have a limited number of uh, commemorative ornaments. Only 250 made. Only 250 made. Um, basically, we're all proceeds go to Parks and Rec Capital Projects uh, for Parks and Rec Quality of Life Um we have a limited number of those available for sale, but all the activities for the Berkeley uh, commemoration, including West Virginia Day, Juneteenth, uh, all the different activities, and there are multiple activities, are on the Berkeley County Commemoration website, berkeleywv250.com. And you can go on the Facebook page. There's Facebook page, event pages created as well. You can It'll, actually look up Juneteenth, West Virginia Day celebration. and It'll and come right yep. up. Perfect. Yeah, and and there's uh, you know we're even gonna have birthday cake on July, uh, June 23rd for <laughs> West Virginia Day. It's a little delayed after West yeah. Virginia Day, but there's an event there at the library. There's more than 30 vendors going to be part of the uh, marketplace celebration. That is yes. really going to be a phenomenal event. I, we have to mention a sponsor real quick. The uh, the uh, Herbert Henderson Office of Minority mm-hmm. Affairs in Charleston, uh, a number of other sponsors uh, really have just jumped in and, and really supported us with that. Uh, some of the local banks as well. Absolutely. Well, uh, that just about does it for us here on Panhandle Live today. Uh, Matt, Helen, thank you for joining us this morning. It sounds like it's going to be a great weekend in downtown Martinsburg. That is for sure. But if you missed any of the show today, you can listen back to it a little bit later on on our Panhandle Live Facebook and Spotify page. But for Marsha, I'm Jordan Ice Warner. It's been Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Have a good one. We'll talk to you next week. Stay as gray as
WEPM Martinsburg and WCST Berkeley Springs, a WVRC media station. We're proud to live here, too.